Okay, cool. Yes, I I'm I'm very excited. I'm really excited about today's film. Um I was thinking that whilst I was watching it, it's like, you know, do you love Rosemary's baby but wish that it wasn't made by a horrific rapist who should die in jail? <laughs> that, then watch this film. <laughs> Can we, can we just can we can we just like start today by just saying fuck you Roman Polanski? I seriously I can't I can't believe people are still giving him awards. What, what's the new Twitter meme like? The Earth has passed beyond the need for Roman Polanski's cinema. <laughs> Where is the Roman Polanski extinction button? Just <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a voluntary human extinctionist, but I with with the caveat that we start with Roman Polanski and then stop immediately after. Yeah, yeah, just for just for piece of shit rapists who still get awards and lauded by the cinema uh, mainstream and cultural elite. And and do you want to know why that is? It's because the cinema mainstream and cultural elite has has the uh, cinematic taste of like a film school sophomore. What are Roman Polanski's good movies even? Like Rosemary's Baby, what are the other ones people always bring up? The Pianist, Chinatown, and and these movies aren't even that good. Polanski is a mediocre filmmaker who has never particularly shown talent. All of the rest of his movies are entirely forgettable, and these movies are just kind of accidentally good. Like Rosemary's Baby had great source material. Uh, yeah, shout out to Ira Levine. And it's it was great in spite of Roman Polanski's involvement, not because of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if I mean, no one is, no one is queuing up to defend what from nineteen from nineteen seventy four, <laughs> or that or that shitty pirates film he made in the late eighties. All all of, all of Roman Polanski's movies are fucking garbage. Don't don't waste your fucking time. If you want to see if you want to see what happens to Rosemary's Baby when it's given to a talented film or a filmmaker, let me let me caveat this. If you want to see what happens when you give the source material of Rosemary's Baby. To a filmmaker who has a magnitude of talent more than Roman Polanski that that is immeasurably more than Roman Polanski. Because Roman Polanski is less than a film school student. Watch Lords of Salem. Oh, yes. <laughs> Rob Zombie is, is a structurally more competent filmmaker than Roman Polanski. I will defend this. You know, you know what? You know how I feel about Robert Zombit. But but I am I won't fight you on that. I won't fight you on that. Yeah, fuck Roman Polanski. Welcome to our show. <laughs> Hello, creeps. Welcome to the horror vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. All the colors of the dark or appreciating the darkness of a strawberry. <laughs> This is going to be so much fun. And, um, well, um, I'm sure you out there in the audience, uh, you know, John, I'm sure they could have guessed what we're talking about today. You know, we, we opened with Roman Polanski, Rosemary's Baby. So, of course, we're talking about Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark. Indeed we are. This is continuing our loose theme for the month of talking about Italian giallo. Um, the last one we did of these was on um, the re remake cover version of Suspiria, which we kind of said wasn't really a giallo film. Whereas this 
is maybe the paradigmatic example of what giallo filmmaking is all about. Yeah, yeah. I think if, if there's, uh, you know, there are so many good giallo movies, but if you wanted one to really taste er- literally everything giallo has to offer, it's it's all the colors of the dark. So, all the colors of the dark. Um, I'm very curious. I'm I am really curious to to see what you come up with because it is that time in the episode for everyone's favorite recurring feature, which is the Ash plot recap. Uh, as always, these are 100% factual, just basically <laughs> basically reading off the Wikipedia plot summary. So, Ash, my friend, my comrade, all the colors of the dark, what's it about? Had to take my glasses off for this one. <laughs> there are times when I worry that I will spend the rest of my life searching for something more beautiful than the scars on my heart. Then, like a bolt sundering the dark... Like a lover spotted in a passing train car, I catch a glimpse of something that radiates with an unyielding perfection. I see light, color, movement, and hope realized. In those brief moments, I know that if I just live another day, I might trip and land into something worth holding on to. This is more than the human desire for wonder. It is the condition of the real. Our reality is defined not by static objects and concrete moments. Rather, it is a tapestry woven of kaleidoscopic memories refracted through experience. This surreality isn't about fiction. It's about a verisimilitude more real than real. In the words of André Breton, this surreality exists to resolve the previously contradictory conditions of dream and reality into an absolute reality, a super-reality. It is in this super-reality this place above mundanity that we can capture the true essence of the real and, in that, rediscover beauty we might have feared lost. Join us for today's film, Sergio Martino's All the Colors of the Dark. Oh, they just keep, they just get better. They just get better. Every everyone I listen to just get better and better. If uh, if NPR ever needs a guy with a voice, I'm right here. <laughs> uh, just so everyone knows, it will be Ash who is responsible for recording the horror vanguard audiobook uh when that eventually uh drops sometime in the future i would love to be responsible for that (laughs) (laughs) yes all the colors of the dark maybe absolutely an incredible example of golden age giallo filmmaking i thought it was really interesting that you decided to quote andre breton so maybe we can start by talking a little bit about the particular aesthetic and style of this film and Giallo generally and its connection to surrealism. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fantastic place to start. And the the choice of Andre Breton was intentional because this film is uh, so some so Giallo kind of falls on the spectrum where some of it's uh, more intentionally realistic and closer to the crime noir that Giallo grows out of. And other other Gialli films are much more surreal. Like today's film. Yes. So what do we mean by by the surreal? Because I think there's like a, a... Generally, I think people assume that it just sort of means like weird stuff. But I don't think that really approaches what this film is trying to do. 
I I would completely agree. I think there's a misconception that surreal just means uh, weird fantasy stuff, right? That that the surreal is just kind of these strange juxtaposition of images, and that is that's a desperate oversimplification of surreal art and surreality as a concept. Um, the quote that I opened with is um, one of Breton's most uh, famous quotes, his famous description of what surreal art is. Mm. And, and the line in there about surreal art being super real, right? Surreality is an attempt to depict reality in a way that uh, mundane, verisimilitudinous depictions just fundamentally cannot do. Yes. Right? Like when you, when you look at a still photograph of i don't know i don't know why this image just popped into mind but like like a, a vintage 20s still photograph of a woman sitting alone in a chair right you'll see you'll see her facial expression her clothes maybe some artifacts from like the plate photography that was used at the time um but what you won't see is in the moment thought processes feelings histories cultural conditions those things are obscured by verisimilitudinous art but they are magnified by surreal art yeah, there's my my favorite definition of surrealism, um, and I think one that really connects with what this film in particular is trying to do, and maybe what Giallo was trying to do, is from um, Breton's Surrealist Manifesto in 1924, where he says, Dictionary, surrealism, noun, pure psychic automatism, by which one proposes to express either verbally, in writing, or by any other manner, the real functioning of thought. Dictation of thought in the absence of all control exercised by reason, outside of all aesthetic and moral preoccupation. And if we think about, like, what's the big famous kind of um, movement of Italian film before we get to the high point of Giallo is Italian neorealism, right? Where, you know, directors would take their camera out of the studio and into the street trying to like capture reality and it had this um it had this kind of drive towards very similitude towards uh realism whereas surrealism is about accessing the real in the lacanian sense right that traumatic unknowable the, the the kind of real essence of thought which we constantly run up against and get th flung back off like a wave breaking on shore um, Breton was interested in things like Freud, in automatic writing, in accessing the unconscious, and most importantly, in understanding and harnessing the power of dream logic. Um, and I think that's what this film does. It it creates a certain kind of mood. It isn't it isn't very realistic, but it's very real. That distinction right there is is the best way to sum this up in a single sentence is that it's not very real, but it's incredibly realistic. Uh, yeah, but I said it the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just going to go ahead and leave that in and it'll just be a fun little moment for our listeners. Uh, no, I do always get things right. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. But no, no, I think um, I think looking into the history of this is incredibly interesting, right? Because um, one of the things that is always worth pointing out is that surrealism doesn't just come out of nowhere. It grows out of Dadaism. Yes. And what does Dadaism emerge as a response to? Fascism. 
if you are looking for a left aesthetic or left artistic movement, you'll find it in surrealism. Yes. Um, like this, this was created by artists and filmmakers and writers and intellectuals who were living in Europe through the rise of fascism in the early 20th century. Uh, Andre Breton said that there was the need for a kind of revolutionary myth that was opposed to what he called the myth of Odin, which is like the f- fascists' own like self-projected ideology. You know, what do fascists believe about themselves? You know, there's a lot of kind of appropriation of Norse mythology in far-right uh, ideology now, still. And he said, like, what we need is you don't... Realism isn't going to work. What you need is you need a kind of ideological weapon. You need a way to tap into, like, people's dreams, desires, and, and channel that libidinal energy into a kind of revolutionary direction. Surrealism and, and Dadaism have clear anti-fascist uh communist sympathies um which is why you know giallo is is such a kind of fascinating form for both of us i think yeah no no i completely agree i think i think in large part like a lot of my a lot of my taste in cinema is drawn to the surreal whether it's intentional or otherwise right because I think a lot of a lot of like um Veronica. Veronica is a great example of this. Veronica <laughs> is such a clumsy film that it it kind of comes full circle, right? Like it it goes beyond the pleasure principle and and and, ex- and it exists on the other side as this surreal object. And and there's this there's this like anti-capitalist, anti-fascist impulse that kind of rests inside of all surreal art, some more louder than others. Yeah, yeah, that kind of filters through European aesthetics uh, and the history of uh, art in the early half, in the first half of the twentieth century. There were some incredible surrealists who made films. Maybe the most famous one being *Un Chien Andalou* by Louis Bunel mm-hmm. and Salvador Dali. You had uh, *Entre Actes* by René Clair, uh, *Le Toit de Mer* by Man Ray in nineteen twenty-eight. Uh, so it's not a surprise that this kind of the, the cinema, the the cinematic language of the surreal would kind of filter into um, giallo. But I think this kind of brings us on to maybe one of our favorite things to talk about on the show, which is basically the ways in which horror cinema, in all of its very various and hybridized forms, is always drawing off multiple generic influences because like we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about Suspiria but like to call giallo a distinct genre is in some ways a bit inaccurate because it's it's like six genres all at the same time (laughs) um and I just maybe maybe we can talk a little bit about how that finds expression in all the colors of the dark yeah, yeah. I think All the Colors of the Dark is such a strong example, I think, as I mentioned at the top of the show, of kind of everything that makes giallo giallo, right? Like, this is this is a pure synthesis of giallo aesthetics and cinematography and plot, or perhaps non-plot, if you will. So, like, let's, like, break up all the things that kind of come to a head when we get to create gialli, right? You've got... You've got Italian crime fiction, you know, which is which is heavily kind of pulp crime noir. 
you've got you've got this kind of like surreal cinema you've got these notes of german expressionism you have these like psychedelic scores and all of this is like stewed together to to make what we popularly conceive of today as giallo Mm. yeah because this this film is is as with lots of giallo this film is a it's essentially a crime story but it just also happens to involve a uh, mysterious sex cult and a man with terrifying blue eyes and horrible dreams about murder. Um, so it's drawing off all of these strands at the same time. And I know that the the way in which you wanted to kind of get into this is by talking about the set design and use of space. Yeah, yeah. The set design in, in this film is really 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 interesting right because you have kind of two or three contrasted set design theories operating at once you have the heavily surrealistic set designs when uh our our main character jane harrison is having her like psychosexual nightmares all of those take place in this kind of surreal dream dimension where where you know like the the laws of reality don't apply and things are incredibly strange but you've also got like a lot of set pieces like when she's in her room like the set is so carefully measured and laid out and designed uh, a lot of them are like um it, it, it almost reminded me uh, in a comical way of that that twitter account that's like accidental renaissance mm. where you where it's just like uh images captured from life that accidentally give off the feeling of a renaissance painting <laughs> but a lot of a lot of the scenes where um Finette's character is kind of like alone and in a room like the the image is just so incredibly balanced. Oh yeah, yeah. Because that's one thing that Giallo has always been really good at, right? It's been good at this um very practiced and stylized aesthetics. And in a way, like some of the set des- sets are incredibly traditional, right? You have the Gothic castle, the the abandoned uh, house in the country that nobody goes to anymore. You have the huge residential, but but also some of them are very uh, updated on these old classic Gothic conventions. So you have like the big residential block with the with the terrifying. Uh, mid twentieth century elevator, which is basically going to kill you every time you oh, get yeah. into it. <laughs> so it it takes on, it places itself within this very kind of, um, very familiar gothic tradition of certain tropes and certain settings, but it also puts them into a much more up to date version as well. Yeah, and I think that like this speaks to the history of the gothic, right? Because when castles were being turned into these kind of derelict scenes of haunting that was that was hundreds and hundreds of years after the construction of these castles mm. right like like it is it is after we are well divorced from a cultural understanding of of what the castles were in their heyday mm-hmm. and in in all the colors of the dark we're seeing that tra- that same kind of like psychogeographic transformation happening to residential apartments you know in in a lot of respects the the kind of labyrinthian and unknown structure the hidden corners all of the inaccessible and secretive rooms that we have in like the apartment complexes we live in today radiate with the same energy as like 
abandoned monasteries, you know, from the 1600s. Yeah, completely. If anything, if anything, things have become a little more uh, complex because this is something I've thought for a while, which is that, like, if those abandoned monasteries were terrifying because of the sense of history that came with them, those residential blocks and, and huge stacks of flats and apartments are terrifying precisely because they don't have any history. They don't have that same anchoring and kind of long, uh, long time, which gives somewhere kind of meaning and coherence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's very much gothic, but it is actually using space in a way that updates those gothic conventions. Yeah, and it's it's just it's so phenomenally interesting too because we're watching these processes happen in real time, right? Like by by the time that Horace Walpole is putting together the Castle of Otranto, Gothic aesthetic has already been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and Gothic aesthetic starts off as a hodgepodge of of different Middle Eastern aesthetics anyway, right? So so we have this even longer history if we want to really pull back how the Gothic winds up coming together. But like uh, uh, Horace Walpole, from an architectural perspective, is also infamous for his uh, mansion, Strawberry Hill. Mm-hmm. Least goth name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the haunting darkness of Strawberry Hill. Yeah, it just doesn't How- work, does it? Just doesn't work. No, it's, it's a little branding error. Or maybe that's on us. You know, maybe, maybe there is a darkness to strawberries that we don't truly appreciate. Um, however, um, architecturally speaking, Strawberry Hill made no sense when it was being constructed. Horace Walpole just took all of these like gothic aesthetics he liked and slapped them together with really no care uh, or, or desire to care about what they were originally intended for. Oh, yeah, yeah. Famously so. Like, because he was an antiquarian. He didn't, you know. Oh, yeah, he was, he, he was out, out there, to say the least, in his personal life. But I think like that's that's kind of like one of the defining characteristics of the Gothic is it's always recontextualizing itself and recreating itself using yeah. bits of the past. And like we're in that moment right now, right? Living, we are living in the castles and monasteries of our age. Four hundred years from now, we'll be getting the Gothic stories written with the same with the same relative perspective and context that Horace Walpole was writing about castles. Yeah, which is an which is a fascinating thought, because that has to change the way that we relate to and move through space. Yeah, I think I think a movement in space are are really good, especially in the context of this film. You know, we have so many repeated sequences, especially when Finetch's character is having her her psychosexual nightmares and hallucinations. Yeah, there's there's so much about movement and and proximity and space. You know, th- things are either are like almost pulsatingly close, or or they're they're hyper distant. Yeah, and or or they they're moving way too quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and all of this, all of this is done with maybe one of the best things about any good giallo, which is the use of music and its score. Um, what do you think about the score in All the Colors of the Dark? Um, this is one of my favorite scores. I, I think um, Giallo, more broadly, has some of the best music I have ever heard um, in, in cinema. Like, it is just so good. And, and its use um, in the cinema is 
just phenomenal. Like the score was done by um, Bruno Nicolai. And mm. I, the, the best example of this is early in the movie. I think this is when like the first five or ten minutes. There is a sex scene between um, Jane uh, Jane Harrison and her boyfriend Richard Steele, aka Dick Steele. <laughs> a the, name the, I, the most British heterosexual man name you can right. imagine. I was, I was going to say Dick Steele is definitely a great stage name for a particular uh, industry inside of cinema. <laughs> Oh yeah, a hundred percent. That's, that's but, a gimme, um, you know. <laughs> right, but the uh, the sex scene, right? It, it has this this horrifying jagged score playing underneath it, right? Because because the whole time we know that Jane is is kind of in the midst of the, of this of this trauma that she's experiencing, right? And she can't connect with with her lover, her partner. Um, but it's the score that makes that scene work. It's the score that makes that scene translate. Um, while I was watching rewatching the movie today, actually, I I went back, rewatched that scene, muted the volume, and just played some generic romance music off of YouTube, mm-hmm. and it completely changes and rereads the scene up until oh, the yeah. point where um, you know, like the sex scene stops. Like the score is just vital for understanding how that operates, which is true to, to some extent for all of cinema, but like there were there were things where it's like. Like um, Jurassic Park, the scene where where the T Rex first attacks the the jeeps and first breaks through the fence in the original movie, mm-hmm. you you could put like like wacky music underneath that, and it would just be <laughs> awkward. You know, yes. it, it wouldn't it wouldn't transform it into something funny. Um, I think I think that's really true. And to put this in conversation with Suspiria, um, I really like the score in Suspiria. I I really I I kind of like the 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 bleak minimalism of it but when you when you watch something like this or you know maybe kind of vintage Dario Argento or Mario Bava and the, the way in which music is used it's such an integral part of the film as a whole and I think in many ways like a lot of contemporary horror thinks that music is basically there as like a dramatic sting you know you you have the carefully choreographed jump scare and then the uh composer gets passes out on the lower third of his keyboard to give you the and (laughs) and that's what the music is for it's there to it's there to reinforce what the camera and what the rest of the the films is doing structurally speaking but i think you're completely right one of the things i really like about this film is that at every point score is not just kind of reinforcing but it's actively helping to construct a meaning or a way of responding to the film i think you're completely correct about that like i think i think there's this there's this impulse to treat the score especially you especially when we're talking about horror cinema which is notorious for like great horror movies have great scores for a reason and and the kind of like horror movies that we consider to be a little bit more disposable have incredibly generic scores. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I I think I think you're completely right. The score is in a sense almost another special effect. It's almost another prop. You know, you're you're right. You get the violin stings when the killer shows up, and then the score is gone for the rest of the movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, precisely. But that is not what this film is doing. I realize I realize we haven't really talked a lot about story. <laughs> so far. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. 
But wait, then, wait, 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 what's that? Are we talking about a book? <laughs> okay, so here's my here's my kind of hot take, and um, maybe you'll just agree, but it's this: in Giallo horror, uh, plot literally doesn't matter. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I'd go that extreme, but plot definitely is secondary to everything else that's going on in Giallo, and not, I, I think, not in a bad way. You know, no, like, because no, not at all. We've, been, I think, I think we've been trained by kind of god awful generic Hollywood cinema to value plot above everything else. Like, if something doesn't make narrative sense, if it's not kind of narratologically sound, it's it's abject. But like, yeah, Giallo kind of proves that you can really have like like this movie has like the most bog standard cookie cutter gothic plot ever. You know, we've we've got we've got a <laughs> yep. a frail and fainting female heroine. And a bunch of unscrupulous men, and like I'm already getting bored describing the plot because this is this has been done to death. This is like every gothic plot. Yeah, and whatever kind of exposition, the majority of exposition and plot movement literally happens in the last ten minutes of this film. <laughs> like, <laughs> but that that's because that's because you know this is something I put on our kind of notes for this episode, which is that Giallo is basically a machine for generating certain kinds of affect certain kinds of affective response in its viewer so it is it's about mood it's about sensation it's about uh feeling and if it has the most generic cookie um cookie cutter plot i had to say that very carefully (laughs) (laughs) uh that's because it's depending upon its viewer already kind of knowing what the plot is. Because mm-hmm. we're not watching for a plot. We're watching to see what kind of affective response this this kind of filmic machine can generate. Yeah, I think I think that's a great a great way to look at this, right? It's not about uh it, you know, like like a, the narrative right it's it's about affect you're completely correct with that like it's 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 about memory it's about experience it's about all these other things that we tend to disregard and and i think like this this ties right back into kind of like the anti-capitalist origins of dadaism and surrealism right you know because cinema that focuses predominantly on narrative is incredibly easy to digest right like there, there yeah. there's a reason why the most surreal thing in any Marvel movie is the special effects in Doctor Strange. And those are only like, when I say surreal, I mean like surreal in the stereotyped psychedelic blacklight poster sense Mm. and not surreal in the actual experiential sense that like films like All the Colors of the Dark are attempting. That's because, as you say, it's because it's trying to tap into that kind of uh, psychoanalytic layer of meaning we're supposed to respond to this kind of viscerally uh, almost unconsciously it's like it's like a dream and that you know maybe maybe when you stop watching it you'll go uh, so what was it what was it about oh yeah there was there was the there was the 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 sex cult and the magic there was there was some crime uh, there was there was uh and but that but that's not really the most important thing right what's important is how does this text make you feel what do those feelings mean what they what do they tell you about yourself about what you're seeing and responding to 
Um, because this is exactly what Breton was writing about, trying to reveal the purest essence of thought, trying to get trying to get beyond or kind of through that barrier of rational narrative that we construct and, and get it get at something a bit more kind of real and impactful. We haven't really talked about plot, but maybe we should talk a little bit about it because there is a a very common trend in a lot of horror, which is the ways in which um, specifically women and female protagonists are controlled, abused and gaslit by all of the men around them. I think um I, I think like that's that's part of the key to understanding this too because it does fall into a bunch of the gothic's most tired tropes and horror's most tired tropes because this is this is yet another movie where we have a person who is mad who is an unreliable narrator and yeah 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 turning the screw whatever like, yep. <laughs> yeah 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 we've been there uh, we have we have we have all of those tired conventions but I I do think that this film is interesting in depicting the kind of levels of abuse that that uh, Fenech's character is is living through because you have her her partner right who's who's kind of this this unfaithful boyfriend who is is of he he works at the GNC he's a vitamin salesman <laughs> <laughs> which which I'm sure I'm sure when this movie came out that that was respectable but now it's like dude you're selling you're selling like whey powder out of the back of your car you're really creepy <laughs> Yeah, he's like a creepy dude in a multi-level marketing scheme. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Have you thought about signing up 10 of your friends to sell these vitamins? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So he's an interesting character. <laughs> but he keeps get, trying to get Jane to to just take these vitamins. These, these vitamins that will heal her and make her feel better. And like Jane hates taking them, but she does anyway because he's pressuring her. So you have you have that level of abuse, which is which is incredibly serious and needs to be discussed. And then you have like much more intense levels of abuse, like what the cult is is doing to her, what the uh, uh, psychological doctor is doing to her. You know, like yeah. there, there's kind of this gradation, and you're seeing through the course of this film, like all of these layers of abuse that that Jane's character has to process. Yeah, yeah. Um. And this, I think it's this constant um, idea that oh she's she's unwell, so so like her own she's she is pathologized by everyone surrounding her. She's turned into something that has to be, um, you know, treated and managed, uh, and because everything must be it must be a delusion. She can't it can't possibly be be true or be real. And it's very interesting that this film is very anti-psychiatry <laughs> because she suggests that she's going to go see a, 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 not, no, specifically a psychoanalyst. Uh, and Richard Dick Steele is, uh, is like, no, you know, psychoanalysts, they're, they're all terrible. It's all nonsense. You shouldn't do this. Um, actually, thinking about it, that does make a lot of sense because also what is psychoanal- uh, psychoanalysis about but about kind of tapping into 
the kind of dream logic, understanding the unconscious. And when you start to do that, you understand that actually, no, you are not pathological. This isn't, you aren't, you aren't, you don't need to take those, those medications that your partner is forcing you to take because you might actually be able to kind of come to an understanding of what you're going through without them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree with that. Right. Because I think this movie has some interesting discourse on psychoanalysis specifically, right? Because we yeah. have we have we have this juxtaposition between psychoanalysis, which is kind of often in our modern context treated as a sham science. You know, it's it's dismissed. It's non scientific. The results are not scientifically verifiable in a lot of uh, contexts. And then it's being contrasted with a vitamin salesman. And like, uh, yes. <laughs> vi vitamins, I mean, like, you know, some, some aspect of vitamins have been completely proven by science, right? Like, we know what happens when you don't take vitamin C. You get scurvy, right? Yeah. Like, like, that is documented. So we have, like, this, this contrast between this hard science guy who will not listen to his partner or do anything to understand what she's going through. Yep. And this this psychoanalytic guy who who is attempting to process these things, attempting to to find understanding and meaning and get her to a place where she can kind of move through her trauma. But he's also kind of like you know, we 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 see a little bit of the flaws in how psychoanalysis was initially constructed, right? Because psychoanalysis is still to this day deeply misogynistic, and that's because it's tied to Freud and Freud was a deep misogynist. Yep. And we we like we like the introductory scene where we first meet her psychoanalytic therapist, right? Jane Jane says that she saw another man in the lobby, and he looked just like the man in her dreams. And then the psychoanalytic guy is like, "Oh, I'm sorry to contradict you, but you're wrong, because I <laughs> <Yeah>. would never. <laughs> I don't let my patients sit in the same lobby. There's no way that anyone could ever contradict my man will." <laughs> like, what something that doesn't that doesn't go the way that I, a man, have determined? What nonsense is this? Right, and then like literally thirty seconds later, the receptionist is like, "No, I, I let somebody sit in here because he wanted to talk to you, but he went he went away later." Yeah, like like so literally thirty seconds later, he's disproven, and like, I, I think I think we we get like these windows into how like systems that could benefit people right right uh um, you know like scientifically verifiable medicine psychoanalytic uh therapy are still beholden to kind of like larger societal systems of oppression and those hold them back and i know you wanted to talk about neoliberalism and wellness and i think this is a good like jumping off point for that yes absolutely the, the, because one of the big one of the the kind of points of this film is this film is basically about a a response to a traumatic event, right? How do we deal with trauma? Um, because that's something that we find out right at the start. Like uh, Jane has been through something extremely traumatic, uh, has lost a child. Um, and so the way in which trauma is processed is through this discourse of it being something from which you can and should recover you should you should you should be uh curable and that isn't to say that you know trauma shouldn't be uh should be something that kind of completely you know dominates your life it's obviously that's not what i'm trying to say but 
it is medicalized. It's turned into something that is privatized and something that is medical, a medical or, or uh, psychological issue that can be rectified with the right kind of drugs or, or so on, or so, and so on and so on. Whereas in actuality, trauma is something that is um, very frequently is a social problem. It's it's emerged from our social conditions, and so rather than you know mark fisher talks about this in uh, by calling the privatization of stress so let's say you are dealing with something incredibly stressful people go oh well maybe you need to go to therapy but we would never go well maybe we need to look at why we live in such a way that these kind of psychological um challenges and issues emerge maybe we should look at the way in which society is has comorbidities it has it has things which can make our lives immeasurably worse yeah i i think i think you're completely correct about this and i think there's like it, it doesn't really come up in this movie too strongly but there's that productivity discourse that always comes to play here mm. right like like the entire modern medical apparatus isn't designed to heal you it's designed to make you productive again Right. There is yes. there is no concern for your well-being. There is concern for your ability to work inside the economy. Right. And um, like, oh, go on. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, what I was going to say is like what made me think about this is um, uh, what I was I was watching uh, the new season of Queer Eye today, uh, which is all about people who've been through something incredibly difficult in their lives. But this what's the solution? Uh, the solution is. Well, maybe maybe what you need is you need a new skincare routine. <laughs> yeah. That that's what that's what you promised, and it's it's all very feel feel good and very uh, kind of like emotively impactful. But what your the solution to uh, tra- trauma, which is caused by systemic issues, is not something that is individual. You know, just because somebody has come in and given you new new kitchen countertops, you still live in a capitalist system, which is, you know, incredibly damaging to us all, psychologically speaking. So neoliberalism privatizes trauma. It makes it something that you have to deal with rather than something that means that all of us need to create a better world for everybody to live in. Unsurprisingly, I completely agree. Um, and I, I always think about, I think this was the first season of the new Queer Eye, but there's an episode with an old man who, uh, I mean, like he's got the classic old man disposition. He doesn't like talking about his feelings, none. And like, I think he was a truck driver or something, but he's got like, like, I just remember like the whole episode. I'm like, this guy has a crushingly, it ter- looks like he, like at least the way he was presented in the episode, I know nothing about this person in reality outside of this, this TV show, but like inside of the context of the TV show, it looks like he's under considerable economic strain. He's clearly been like just completely ruined by years of, of not questioning his position inside of the patriarchy, inside of white supremacy, inside of colonialism right and and he he's been shattered and atomized by by the mechanics of the world that we live in and then like the the queer eye guys are like try this try this face cream it'll lower your redness uh, and, yeah, and exactly. you're absolutely right it is just it's like it's baffling to me 
and like but it's also like okay here's why the show is super popular because it's this like incredibly economically conservative tv show that wears a friendly liberal mask you know yeah maybe you too can feel better by buying the face mask and it's like you know if you've been through a trauma and you're surrounded by people who are telling you actually that isn't real maybe you just need to be better adjusted maybe you should go and see this friendly psychoanalyst that (laughs) i've I've found for you maybe you should go and see this um sex cult (laughs) that do do magic rites um so yeah this is what we mean when we're talking about this kind of wellness discourse where neoliberal rhetoric kind of privatizes and individualizes how we all live yeah yeah no i i think you're completely spot on i think it was really telling that like um before we know that she has a psychoanalytic therapist which are are increasingly rare and they're increasingly rare not just because the the psychological community favors more quote-unquote scientifically demonstrable methods but because talk therapy is slow talk therapy takes a while to to see results but what doesn't take a while to see results is pills yeah right and like there there's a very clear capitalist motive inside of our modern medicinal apparatus but like when when we get that line in the beginning where dick steel is like <laughs> like oh jane uh, uh you know i'm sick of you seeing that psychoanalytic therapist so often and i was like oh my god she has access to a therapist on a regular basis <laughs> all you need to do is take these these pills which i get paid to sell and you'll feel much better such a horrible the, her, her partner is such a horrible grifter oh just an just awful the only part about this movie I don't like is I was really hoping that he would get knifed at some point. That he would get murdered by by the guy with the with the dreamy blue eyes. Oh, I, I was hoping that Jane would do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's he's a scumbag. Um, but all, all the men in this one are scumbags. Uh, uh, once on, once again, on the spectrum of bad. scumbaggery, <laughs> men, men are just bad. That's as horror constantly teaches us. Yeah, patriarchy, patriarchy sucks, I think is one of the primary lessons of the horror film as a mode. <laughs> but one of the things that I think is really interesting in the context of this film is that the vitamins, she hates them. They don't do anything. She doesn't like taking them. There's no benefit from those at all. The only reason she takes them is because she really likes this dude and he's a vitamin salesman. Yeah, right? absolutely. And like this is this is the exact same. She she is the the like the 16-year-old girl in high school pretending to like a band so she can date a guy. Like, except for it's a vitamin salesman, which makes it even worse somehow. But um, also, this this is very, very much uh, like Rosemary's Baby, right? Where, once again, it's like, oh, well, you, uh, if you're pregnant, then you have to, you, sh- you have to go to the doctor. You have to do what oh, the yeah. doctor tells you. Oh, she's, she's hysterical. It's because she's pregnant. Or, or oh, she's, she's hysterical or she's, she's otherwise pathologized because she's been through this trauma and there is this like regular it is a kind of very reactionary when it's when it's reproduced uncritically it's a very reactionary trend in horror to turn uh to to kind of amplify what what is an already existing gendered dynamic that appears in huge swathes of patriarchal relationships but I think, um, so So one of the things that I did want to mention is that one of the things that I find really interesting 
is you have you have this kind of like triptych of care that she's in. You know, you've got you've got the heavily scientific vitamins that just don't do anything for her. Arguably, they're making it worse. You know, and then you've got the the kind of like mid-level scientific psychoanalytic talk therapy, which like it, it works and it's good, but it's kind of like uh, psychoanalysis walks that fine line between uh, things that are demonstrable as hard science and things that are definitely not. <laughs> and then you've got the definitely not side of things where where she has like this. Uh, you, I think there's a few ways to read the scene. I think I think I think it is possible to read her uh, uh, sexual encounter at the satanic cult as like consensual non-consent. You know, she she's agreeing to enter into the space and just let whatever happens happens to her as a means of finding healing that she so desperately craves. But there's also complications well, on top of that. There's the obvious counter reading to that where no, she doesn't consent to this, and can she even consent to this given her condition? But I do find it interesting that her experience at this black mass is the only thing that gives her healing. Like what's, what's the yeah. scene after the black mass encounter? She's finally able to have sex with her partner again and, and kind of feel that, that emotive space that she'd been lacking. Yeah. Uh, because what, what they, they promise, they promise freedom. Yep. That's, that's what they promise. And of course it's notable that that's, that's the only kind of form that presents freedom in a collective sense yeah and you you're right that there are very clear issues there around uh consent and its lack and it's you know consensual non-consent which um i think would be very interesting to kind of try and tease out but it that's very striking that you know it's very it's very individualized up to that point and then all of those scenes are kind of just like a maze of faces there are so many faces. There are so many. Vo we go from very individualized to this slightly terrifying, uh, eroticized collective. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that is really telling on a lot of levels, right? Like, um, uh, you know, I've been I've been working on a larger project that is in its early stages about mobs in horror, and I think like this is a great example of another monstrous mob that kind of appears this, this terror of the collective that shows up in horror but what i think is kind of like really really interesting about this and like it, it, it like the consensual non-consent thing is really interesting because like she agrees to go to this thing and show up to it but like we don't really know the specifics and the mechanics of her agreement you know and like so i think like you do get both of those readings right this is kind of like a multivariate sequence and not to play too heavily into like the medicalized um not medfet but medicalized kink uh discourse where oh kink is a way to find healing and nothing more like i i mean that is true kink is a way to find healing but it's also just fun and i think we shouldn't lose you know the forest for the trees necessarily but like i do i do think it's really interesting that it is in this encounter that can only be framed through the occult and through kink that she finds healing. And this is something that like, it's, it's really difficult for capitalism, or at least it's been really difficult for our manifestation of capitalism to monetize those two things, mm. you know, like, like capitalism as we experience it has a lot of trouble turning 
sexual freedom and spiritual connection into money. So it, it has to create simul simulacra, right? Yeah. And I think, I think that's why, um, well, both, both sex and the spiritual, uh, as I've said before, are designed to kind of take us beyond ourselves, right? Uh, to, to connect with, uh, another others or to connect with something far greater far more mysterious than ourselves um so i think you're i think you're really right i think that scene is very interesting but again i think if we think about these films in the context of dialogue and surrealism it's a mistake to try and pin down one specific reading um like i said right at the beginning these this film i think operates on a kind of dream logic so a lot of causation just doesn't get included because that's how it works in a dream, right? You wake up and you're in a place and then the next thing you remember, you're in a different place mm -hmm. or something else has happened. But causation doesn't necessarily come into it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think part of that dream logic, like dream logic has a pure and unbridled honesty that yeah. I, I quite frankly find refreshing. Like you, you can have a dream and... And in the dream, someone will be your dad, but it won't be your dad, but you'll know it's your dad, you know? And, and like, that makes no sense in, in, in a very plot and very narrative heavy story that would need to be hammered out and explained and beaten to death. But in the honesty of a dream, you can just accept it yeah, and continue exactly. forward from that point into new discoveries and new ideas. Yes. And that's exactly what I think you see in the formal and structural choices of this film yeah I, I i i completely agree i think the structural elements in giallo lend themselves to that like the, there's an honesty to giallo that's tied in to its surrealism but uh with that said uh we are coming up at the customary closing time of the horror vanguard crypt uh so is there anything else you want to add about uh today's film or giallo more broadly um, no, just that I hope this has maybe kind of like inspired people to go and hunt out some giallo. Um, there, it's an incredible thing, you know, like watch it, watch it at night in a dark room, you know, maybe with a strong drink to hand and kind of see what happens. Open yourself up to the experience because it is something that's incredibly sort of powerful and it does... As a form, as a sub-sub-genre, I think Giallo takes horror into some really interesting directions and its connections with surrealism actually, I think, have given... Like, going back to a lot of these films uh, for, for this kind of episode has given me a, a kind of much deeper appreciation of what horror can do, psychoanalytically speaking. How about you? I love I love that you end your your thoughts with the phrase psychoanalytically speaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah when I, am, when we, I am who i am okay <laughs> when, when, when we when we got that uh a clip at the beginning where the boyfriend is like enough of your psychoanalysis like i was yeah, like oh yeah, yeah that, that, that reminds me of a lot of my early conversations with john before we started the show <laughs> yeah put 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 that just see if you can clip that and just like put it <laughs> in after after me being a pretentious dickhead <laughs> <laughs> But no, I, I, I do think you're completely right. I, I think like the 
if giallo shows us anything it's that like when we embrace like the anti-capitalist nature of surrealist art we can really expand the boundaries of what horror has to offer beyond the kind of like bog standard and eternal slasher remakes we're forced to live through every every other month now go watch some giallo (laughs) (laughs) that's it that's the that's the tweet go watch giallo (laughs) Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. Ha 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 